Okay, the, uh, friends, this morning in uh, this sermon just now, what I want us to do, to be frank with you, is I want us to turn and to face the very difficult subject of our suffering. I want us in our short time together to turn and consider the hardships that inevitably come into our lives. And as we do that, I want to begin by making a really straight a forward observation, and it's this, that very often for us, for all of us in the room, when we suffer, our suffering is confusing. That's the very straightforward observation to start with, that our suffering is very, very, very often confusing. It baffles us. We find it perplexing. It is certainly true that suffering, by the nature of things, must be confusing to the unbelieving mind. Isn't that the case? Let's face it. When all people suffer, there is, regardless of their spiritual standing and situation, there is, when all people suffer, deep down in them, a sense that this suffering is wrong. Right? Deep down, it seems to suffer, seems unnatural. It it cannot be We hear the way of things, but outside of Jesus Christ and absent of a biblical worldview, there is no explanation. There is no framework for understanding why do I feel as though suffering is not how things are meant to be. Suffering is confusing for the unbeliever. But then we've got to add to that, don't you think? Because it is the case, surely, that very often suffering is also very confusing for the Christian, for the child of God. It is isn't it? You know what we're like. So seldom do we study the Bible. So seldom do we really wrestle with Scripture. What happens when suffering comes into our life? We are left armed only with platitudes, armed only with cliches and superficialities in which to try and comprehend this new and unpleasant situation we find ourselves. You see the the opening idea, do you? Suffering is confusing for one, and suffering is confusing for all. Well, in this letter that we've been studying for for weeks, maybe even months, I hope it doesn't feel like years to you, uh, the Apostle Peter has been addressing what is one particular form or type of suffering, hasn't he? One particular type of suffering. What is it? He's been addressing opposition that Christians face from outside, opposition to the church. Well, as we continue today, let me, let me let you in a little secret. What we come to this morning is treasure. Okay. What we find is gold. Because in this portion of scripture, what Peter does is he explains that suffering to us. Isn't that welcome news when suffering is so often confusing? What Peter does is he actually gives the church a framework, or if you like, he gives us a lens to understand not just why it is, that we face opposition and insult as Christians, but also what God is doing. He shows us how God is actually active through the opposition that Christians face. This is treasure. This is gold. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you to make sure that you've got First Peter 4 in front of you. Let's get to the end of the rainbow. Let's try and get to the, the, the goal. Let's have scripture there in front of us as we consider, first of all, that Christian suffering, it evidences our union with the Son. That's a bit wordy, isn't it? So I'll repeat myself. First thing we see here, 
is that Christian suffering evidences our union, our suffering evidences our union with the Son of God. Okay, so we've got First Peter open. Now, as I look around the room, I can see that with a few exceptions. Probably the majority of you were in this place last Sunday morning, okay? So I'm sure you all remember exactly what we looked at uh, last Sunday morning. Do you? I won't put anybody uh, on the spot. Surely we remember that Peter says to us that in all times, but especially in times of opposition, the Christian church ought to love one another. Remember it now? Is it coming back? Am I the only one that found it really difficult and really challenging? You know, this idea, we've got to show hospitality without even a grumble. You know, the fact that we are to so serve and love each other that we can look past each other's faults, right? It wasn't just me, I'm sure, that found that challenging. Well, from how we are to love each other in opposition, now Peter immediately goes to how you and I as Christians should respond to opposition. And here's the deal. If you are not a Christian in the room, you are probably going to think that the next thing you hear is insane. Okay? If you're not a Christian, what the next thing you read, you're going to think that this is, this is mad. This is the strangest thing in the world. Because you have everyone look at verse 12. How do you see in verse 12? So yeah, you, you, everyone's with me that you see compassion, do you? Do you notice how Peter's consoling people in a really hard time? Beloved or dear friends. You've got that, right? And then you've got Peter kind of affirm the severity. You know, he's not diluting it. He's saying, oh, I know you're going through a fiery trial. But what's the response that he calls for? Do you see, do you see that there's two sides to it? How do we respond to opposition? One side, we're not to be shocked, right? Everyone gets that. I mean, that's straightforward. That as Christians, we're actually to anticipate insult, ridicule. It's part of the Christian life. That's one side of it. But look at the other side. Look at the first two words of verse 13. <laughs> you can see what I mean about it sounding a little bit mad. But you know, when you, you suffer, what's the response to be? Joy, right? You rejoice Rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in difficulty, in opposition. Well, you know that idea in contemporary culture of dropping a mic? You know that idea? You know, the, the, the rapper, let's say, finishes his set and he, and he drops the mic to the stage and then leaves. You know that idea? I, for one, I'm very glad that Peter doesn't do that here. You know, he doesn't just like drop his truth bomb and then leave. I'm glad that Peter sticks around here to explain just why it is that I, as a Christian, why I can have joy when I face suffering in my life. And there are two elements to what he says. So can I ask you just to look back again at the beginning of verse 13? I'll give you a second. At the beginning of verse 13, does everybody see that he says that Christians share in what? We share in Christ's sufferings. Now, let me just check that do we understand what he means? We surely understand that it's not the idea that Christians share in Christ's atoning suffering, his atoning work. We get that, don't we? Everyone gets that. We know that there's just one mediator between God and, and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone secures salvation. We know that. What does it mean? It means that we as Christians, 
we share in a, the same type of suffering as Jesus. Follow? Like, we suffer as Christians for the very same reasons that Jesus suffered. Maybe you can see that, can you? Think about it, that just as those who opposed Jesus in his earthly ministry, why did they do it? They did it out of a hostility and rebellion against God. That's why they opposed Jesus, isn't it? Like whether they realized it or not, that's what they were doing. Don't you recognize that that's the same for us? Why do we, why are we opposed? It's the same nature of our suffering. It is an expression of the world's hatred for God when Christians are opposed. In a sense, actually, I think there's good news already for you and for me, isn't there? In the fact that we share in Christ's suffering. What does that do? The knowledge that you share in Christ's suffering. I think... First of all, it shows us, wait a minute, we don't suffer meaninglessly. I can't even say it. Or there's, it shows us there's a purpose to our suffering, doesn't it? That we share in Christ's suffering. But also, what does it do? It helps you to know where to turn. Do you see it? When you are insulted, when you are taunted by your unbelieving family for the fact that you follow Jesus Christ, you now know where to go. You can go immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ and you know that he understands perfectly what you're going through. But I'll be frank with you, please. I think it's only when we put down the second element here from Peter that we will really see that we can rejoice in suffering. See, I appreciate that some in the room this morning, maybe quite a substantial amount of you are visiting our church. Are you for the, maybe for the first time? Okay. It's great to have you here. It really is. We're delighted that you're here. You might be here because you're visiting. Just passing through London. You might be here for the baptism uh, later on. Okay, you might just be passing through. I'm aware, of course, that because of that, some of you in the room are perhaps even new to biblical Christianity, new to the idea of regularly attending a service and hearing the gospel proclaimed. So I want, if that's you, I want you to hear this loud and clear. What the Bible makes evident is that one day this Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, now listen to this, one day the Bible makes clear Jesus will return. You've heard that idea, even if you're new to church, I'm sure. The Bible makes clear that the Lord Jesus Christ, having actually secured salvation through his life and his death and his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, but he did so promising one day that the Lord Jesus Christ was actually going to come back. Now, do this with me. Do this for me. Imagine the most awe-inspiring event or awe-inspiring scene that you've ever witnessed in your life. What would it be if I was to ask you? Some of you, maybe you've seen the Grand Canyon, right? Most of us will have seen a tremendous uh, electric storm or a beautiful sunset vista, right? I need you to understand that that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, it makes whatever moment you were thinking about there, it makes it appear mundane and dull. You must take it from me. When Christ comes back, it shall be a cosmic event, you know? Like planets falling, skies splitting. It's a majestic moment. A majestic, an indescribable moment 
It's a moment, actually, we are told, where every eye... How does this work? Every eye shall see the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we are told that every voice shall declare his praises. Right, now you stick with me a second. What Peter makes clear in verse 13 is that on that final day, because a Christian is united to Jesus Christ, on that day, all of the people of God will have a part in the glory that Jesus Christ receives. You heard that? It's an amazing thought. Our hope as Christians is not that in the end we are going to receive attention or vindication. That's not a real hope. Our real hope is on that day when Christ returns for all of the world we will participate in the glory that is due the Son of God. It is a thought, let me tell you, that warms and stirs the hearts of every single child of God. Well, if you recognize that, do you not now see why we can rejoice when we are opposed in Jesus Christ's name? Do you not see it? Every moment of opposition for the Christian is a reminder of the glory that awaits do you not see? Since our, since we share in Christ's suffering, since suffering evidences the fact that we are united to Christ, every time we are insulted, it is a reminder, it points us forward to that moment when our union with Christ will be displayed, seen, disclosed to all of the world. Just like with a child, you know, the pain, when they're injured, the pain, of a, a wound, you know, the parent cleansing it, just as that pain can point the child forward to the healing that is to come. Every time we are insulted in Christ's name, every time we are lambasted for being naive as Christians, what can it do for the church? It can remind us we are in Christ, reminds us we are united to Christ. It actually reminds us that one day we shall stand with the Lord Jesus Christ before all of the earth and enjoy the praises of his name. And I, for one, think that's a game changer when it comes to the opposition to Christians. Armed as we are now with this future gaze, surely we're better placed to follow after the early church. Because what do we learn in Acts 5? You maybe know it, do you? Having been persecuted... They left rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Christian suffering evidences our union with the Son. Second of all, though, we see here that Christian suffering evidences our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. So our evidences, it shows our union with the Son, but it also reminds us of our fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're not a Christian in here, hopefully already you're beginning to see how kind of counter-cultural or counter-intuitive the Christian faith really is. I mean, we genuinely are a people in here who, by the grace of God, we can have contentment in all things. That's what Peter's showing you here, that we are, as a people, by God's grace, we can actually rejoice in suffering. How counter-intuitive is that? Well, no sooner have we kind of got our heads around one apparent paradox. What does Peter do? Peter comes along and he slaps us with another 
paradox. Can we look together at verse 14? And again, I'll just give you a moment to find it on your phone or your sheet. Verse 14. Now, what do we see? Just have a look at verse 14. Like, the first thing you've got is a reminder. Do you think? Do you see what he says? He says, if you are insulted, how does that, how's that a reminder? It's a reminder that, like the church today, bigots, Bible bashers, naive, intolerant, like Christians today, Peter's first readership were facing predominantly verbal opposition. Isn't that what that reminds us of? If you are insulted, it's verbal opposition. But then, like a steam train, like a hundred miles an hour coming towards us, you're ready for the paradox. Look at how he goes on. <laughs> what is he saying? Look at it. He says, if you are insulted, you are blessed. Isn't that seemingly paradoxical? I love the way that the, um, the King James Bible, the old language of the Bible puts it, really brings out uh, the paradox because it says this, ready for it, the King James renders it, happy are you <laughs> when you are insulted. That's paradoxical, isn't it? Or, I've got it wrong, of course, because it's the King James, so it should be happy are ye when ye are uh, insulted. Now, if you read on in verse 14, perhaps you'll notice that the focus of the blessing it's different to that that's spelled out by Jesus elsewhere in the Bible. Come on, think about it. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5? Come on, what does he say in Matthew 5? It's a similar idea. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Similar idea. What's the blessing? You will receive treasures in heaven. Now, if you're astute and you're on the ball this morning, you can see that that's not what... Surprising, actually... But that's not what Peter talks about. He doesn't look ahead. What's the blessing linked to at the end of verse 14? Do you see? He links it to the Spirit of God and glory resting on us. So the question we all have, right, is, well, what do you mean, Peter? The Spirit of God resting on us. How's this got to do with insult? Well, I was just going to spit it out. I was just tell you what I think Peter's saying, and then I'll try and back it up. Please, honestly, please hear it. The idea here is that every time a believer endures opposition in Christ's name, it is a reminder to that believer, not just of the sustaining work of the Holy Spirit, but it is a reminder of the fact for that believer that that person is chosen and favored by God. Please hear it. Every time we face opposition and insult and we come through it in Christ's name, it is a reminder to us of who we are, that we are a people who are favored by God. Now, you might sit there and you might say to me, well, how on earth can you back that up? Where are you getting that from? But I think in a sense, you know, because if you've been here for the series, you surely know that Peter has been so heavily reliant on the Old Testament scriptures as he writes this letter, I said, I'm not struck you. Believe me, it's a striking thing when you study this letter. Isn't it? He's relied on Psalm 34 and Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 4. What about last week? He even went to the Old Testament Proverbs, doesn't he? Relying on the Old Testament. I think you can see, can't you? That's the same here. This idea of the Spirit resting. He is one particular portion of Scripture in view. And I've been very kind to you for a change. What I've done is I've sent you 
the portion of Scripture. So if I could ask all to look at your sheet, your order of service. If you look beneath the benediction, try and find Isaiah 11. Everyone got it? Before we read it, I tell you what's going on. Isaiah is speaking about the Christ. Isaiah is speaking about the Messiah. And in this portion of Scripture, the emphasis is that on this figure, this individual, this Messiah, is the one who is to receive the favor of God. Of all the people that have ever lived, this Messiah is the one who is going to receive favor from on high. Now read it. How is this favor spoken about? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his shoot shall bear fruit. How do we recognize the favor of God? And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Friends, do you see it? Back to back to First Peter 4. Do you see why the Apostle Peter is using Isaiah 11? Do you see why he's using the same imagery? He's saying the same of you. He's saying the same of every one of us, that just as the favor of God rested upon the Christ, the Messiah, so that is true of all of the children of God. And wait for the kicker. And what is Peter's point? How do we recognize? How are we reminded of that favor? Peter is saying, through even being insulted in Christ's name. He's saying that opposition in Christ's name is a reminder to us of who we are, a people who are favored by God. Now you think about it for a moment. Isn't this true? The unregenerate man knows nothing of spiritual opposition. Think about it. The world outside, the world apart from Jesus Christ, knows nothing of true and proper spiritual abuse. It is alien. That spiritual opposition is alien to them. And do you not see, in a sense, what opposition does? It reminds you of who you are. It reminds you of who you belong to. It is a badge of identity. Every time you are insulted in Christ's name, Every time you are maligned, every time you are taunted, you are reminded, yes, I belong to Jesus. You're reminded who you are. You are part of a people who are beloved, who are chosen. You, Christian friend, part of a people who are favored by God. Doesn't it change how we view opposition and suffering? Doesn't it? Surely it does. As we come through this insult, we know the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. But we also know the Spirit rests upon us as he does God's one and only Son. And then the last thing, third thing. Christian suffering evidences, what was it? Our union with the Son? Is that the first one? And our fellowship with the Holy Spirit? The last thing our suffering evidences is our refining by the Father. Our refining by the Father. Last week... I said that we as a church had scored a hat trick. Do we remember this? I'm the, the first Scotsman ever <laughs> to have scored a hat trick. We'd have thought. Um, we said last week that in three consecutive sermons, we had come across three or an in, one individual and very difficult phrase. A hat trick, very difficult phrases we had hit and managed to score. I, not for the first time, it's completely wrong. With that, I should have waited, bided my time, because we have scored now four in four 
there is a very difficult phrase in front of us. I would ask you to look at verse 17. It will ring bells with you, no doubt. Look at verse 17. Now, Peter's talking about the reason why Christians suffer. It's actually the reasoning why the church is opposed. And what does he say? He says, it is time for judgment to begin. Where? At the house of God or the household of God. Now, I reckon most people in the room, especially if you've been around churches for any length of time, you kind of heard that phrase banded about, haven't you? It's almost kind of proverbial. Judgment has begun at the house of God. Problem with that is very often it's used incorrectly and the context is wrong. So let me just mention to you what that does not mean. Hear it. That judgment begins at the house of God does not mean that when the church is opposed, this is God punishing us for our sin. I wonder if you've heard that idea. All too often I've heard that said in various places by various people, the idea that what we see when the church in various parts of the world has been persecuted, maybe by the state, what this is, God's hand penalizing his people, God's hand punishing his people. That, of course, is not right. I mean, every believer in the room surely could answer why that is not the case. What is the good news of the gospel? That our sin has already been punished. Isn't that the gospel 101 in Christ Jesus on that cross? Every sin you have committed and every sin you will commit has already been dealt with. There is none remaining to be punished. It does not mean that. But we're still asking the question, aren't we? Judgment begins at the house of God. What on earth can that mean? Well, like, to answer it, I'd ask you for the last time to turn to your order of service Look at the bottom of your order of service and look to Malachi. Come on, let's do it. We're nearly there. You see Malachi right at the end? Malachi 3. Can I just ask you to skim read it? Skim read it. What do you see? This is an Old Testament prophecy. And the prophecy, the content is of a time where God will come to his people and God will judge his people. Okay? This is what I want you to notice. First of all, in verse 1, to where does God go? Where does he go to judge his own people? He goes, you're going to say the temple, are you? Right, so that's the house of God, household language. Then if you look at verses 2 and 3, I'm asking you, what is the nature? What type of judgment is it? Have a look. Is God judging their sin? Is he punishing their sin? What's God doing? He is refining his people. Now you go back to First Peter, look up to First Peter on your page. Do you not see that this portion of Scripture, Malachi, is very much in Peter's view? Because look at verse 17. First Peter 4.17. To where is God to go when he judges? He goes to his household, his temple language. And then look at verse 12. Do you not remember, friends, the crucible language from chapter 1? Do you see what is opposition? It's a fiery trial that tests us. Do you not see what Peter is saying? What do we see when we see opposition to the church? This is God's refining work. When we are insulted, when we are opposed, this is God sanctifying the church. What God allows, what he's doing in allowing us to be ridiculed sometimes by your family and by your friends, what he's doing in allowing you to be taunted is he's purifying you. You can see it, can't you? Think of the crucible. 
just as the gold goes in there to the flames, it is melted down. And why? To remove impurity. So God permits his church to experience the hardship of persecution, to purify us, to change us, to refine us, to make us all the more into the likeness of his son. And maybe you sit there, maybe you wonder at that, but maybe you ask, well, what is the application of this? What do I do and how do I respond? This seems confusing. You need not be confused. Because in verse 16, Peter tells you, what to do in light of this? Peter says, you must not be ashamed. Maybe that is a word that we need to hear in this church. And maybe it is a word that we need to hear in this country as Christians. Because what are we like when we're ridiculed? Isn't it the case that we shrink back as Christians? You face peer pressure from your workmates and unbelieving family. Isn't it embarrassing? No more. Friends, we have to be emboldened. And we have to do what the author to the Hebrews tells us to do when speaking of Christ. He says, therefore, go to Christ Jesus outside the camp. And he commands us to bear the reproach that Christ endured. <clears throat> and I end with this. You'll have noticed throughout the sermon that on a number of occasions I've spoken to the people in the room who aren't just visiting, but who are strangers to Jesus Christ and who do not believe. If that's you, would you just look at verse 16? Ten seconds is all I ask from you. Do you see what Peter says? He says of Christian opposition, if this is the reality for those who trust in Jesus Christ. In verse 16, he says, he throws up his hands in wonder. And he says, if this is what's the reality for Christians, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey? Verse 17, if the righteous are scarcely, scarcely saved, what will become of those who don't believe? And if you are not a Christian in here, you're outside of Jesus Christ, surely, if nothing else, that's been said in this past half hour, surely you understand what Peter's saying there. No matter how awful the reality is for Christians in, the, in this life, Peter tells us it is nothing compared with what awaits those who continue in unbelief. That's the reality. No matter how awful Christian persecution is, and it is, isn't it, in some parts of the world, no matter how terrible it is, it is nothing when compared with the judgment on sin that awaits. And so I would say to you, there is but one way that you can avoid that coming condemnation, and it is by running to Jesus Christ today, resting in him, repenting of your sin, and trusting in Christ. Friend, surely you see in the gospel the love of God, that God in Christ would take upon himself humanity all with the purpose of being punished in our place, to reconcile us to God. What love? Will you not run to Jesus Christ? Will you not believe in him today? And in so doing, be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this portion of scripture.
Um, Lord God, we realize that we are called to righteous deeds. We're called to goodness as your people. We are not to face opposition for doing wrong. It's opposition that we face for following the Lord Jesus Christ. You tell us at the end of this portion of Scripture to entrust ourselves to our faithful Creator. We realize what that means. We are to follow after Jesus Christ, who on that cross entrusted himself to his loving Father. He committed his soul into your hands. Help us, we pray. Lord God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.